Welcome back to the Highway to Well. Today, we're talking to Tyler Stunnebeck, who by day is a wellness consultant at M3 Insurance, and at all other hours is a burning light of the human spirit, an embodiment of the endeavors we seek in experiment and exuberance, and a team member in this ever-expanding family of wellness professionals pushing our field to be more. Today, we'll cover a lot of that ground, but Tyler will also leave us with his own 80s movie mic drop moment. You won't want to miss that. Thanks again for listening. Let's get on the highway to well. Tyler here is a wellness consultant at M3. He's also a point grad, UWSP from Health Promotion and Wellness. He's also notably an All-American from the lacrosse program here, which we'll talk about at some point. And he has this incredible background in about every industry you could possibly want to be in a seasoned and very high-level practitioner in the wellness field. From funeral homes to ski resorts to being a lifeguard to being a salesman in the shoe industry, bartending, all of these launched this amazing career that you now have in health promotion and wellness. So Tyler, tell me, what does your high well journey look like? Oh man, well first thank you for having me and you actually gave my my history of work a better like overview of, of how I would approach that. So thank you for that, it makes me sound very seasoned. Uh, when I think about my highway to well, uh, you know, it's it's everything that's around me that's contributed to where I'm at and where I'm going, right? So I mean, that, it sounds kind of cliche, but I do, I'm a firm believer in that that your environment around you really kind of shapes you into and leading to where you're at today. Um, so when I define well-being or wellness, that's what I think about. It's it's really my pursuit of of feeling well, being well, but also taking in like that environmental around you of, of how can that change or how can it enable me to to make those healthy choices. So you you have spent some time yourself practicing wellness and one of the things that you really like to do is make goals. Yes. So we had talked earlier that you're doing pretty well in your 2019 goals. So I want you to tell me about that goal setting process and what have you accomplished this year? But also, now that we're at the end of the year, there's hopefully some people that are thinking about goals for 2020. What do you think you have store in store here for 2020? That's a great question. Um, so 20, 2019 is the, the year I decided to like make a concerted effort in a couple different areas of my life. Um, I'm a, I'm a biker, so cycling, mountain bike, road biking, you name it, that's kind of my, my passion in the summer above and beyond golfing. Um, but that was my first goal is I wanted to put down a number that I was going to try to achieve in 2019, whether it's outside or whether it's indoor. And I, and if you're a triathlete or a, an actual cycler, my numbers aren't going to feel huge by any means, but to me, they were big goals, right? So I think in, when you write your own goals specifically, it's thinking about where you're at and not where others might perceive you to be at. So Goal number one was a thousand miles biking, and currently I'm at a thousand and seventy-six, I believe. 
So I've I've met and per, uh, surpassed that goal. So you know I'm, I probably should have shot a little bit higher, um, <laughs> but I'm I'm happy for now you know for next year exactly. So going forward next year, my 2020 goal is um, 2,020 miles. So I'm gonna try to do 2020 in 2020, and that was driven directly from a Strava um, group and goal. That was that's how I track my mileage. Mm-hmm. Two is I'm not a runner. Um, when you think about a runner who goes out and runs, like that's just not me. I've never been a runner. Um, you know, when I left college, I was 50 pounds heavier than I am I'm right now. But that was my first step into my highway to well, so to speak, as a triathlon <laughs> training class at the end of my uh, my college career to, to get me moving more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had I made a goal of 150 miles running, and then actually upped it to 250 kind of throughout the year. So just surpassed that the other day it's taken me a full 12 months right to get to that excellent um if you are an avid runner you're again that's not a huge number but if you're also just a a a layman who doesn't run that's a that's a big goal Mm -hmm. so i tried to to buff that i will i'm going to see where i end the year in order to make the next year's goal because i also like 2020 like doubling my cycling mileage will take away from that running yeah right so i'm going to try to balance that a little bit um, the third physical goal I made was I wanted to do a hundred push-ups and a hundred sit-ups every single day of the year. Now I am, I will say I averaged that. There was one day this year that I wasn't able to complete that and that was the opening day of deer hunting season, <laughs> right? So I'm up at, you know, 4.30, get in my stand, I sit there all day and, you know, it, there just wasn't an opportunity. So Sunday morning, I actually doubled it up and so I can make that average. So I can say that I've averaged 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups every single day this year, even including the days that I was sick. Now, there's an article the other day that came out about um, what this guy has learned by doing 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups for the past decade. Mm-hmm. So I'm obviously nowhere near that, but again, it was it was my opportunity. And I didn't start off with where I'm at. So my first day doing push-ups, right, I, I, get, I only did like 10 at a time. But that was okay because that was my start. Yeah, and even the sit-ups are a little bit easier, but um, it was a it was a growth process. Mm-hmm. So where I'm comfortable, where I'm at right now is instead of doing ten sets of ten, I'm now doing two sets of fifty. So I feel like I've I've, I've accomplished quite a bit. That's excellent. Uh, and then I made a financial goal. Um, I had read something on a, a blog that said, you know, it's it's weird to think about, but save every single $5 bill that you get. Um, so throughout the year, if I ever get any change, and it's actually been a detriment to my sons, <laughs> we were at a fair um, right where you have rides and, and call this like foot down log corn dogs or whatever. Yeah. And I said, well, now yeah, we can't get popcorn because dad's got a $5 bill that he's got to go put in the piggy bank when he gets home. Yeah. But like that conversation for me was more about you know talking about the goal and how I'm trying to save that and hopefully to instill that whatever but so every five dollar bill I've saved um and I'm a, I'm a coin saver too so like ever since I was probably a sophomore in high school I've had this two and a half foot tall UW Badgers like beer bottle looking thing <laughs> that I, I brought to college with me I mean it's got duct tape on it now because mm-hmm. it's went through the ringer but that was that was it just save it all so um it's almost plumb full mostly with like dollar bills so five dollar bills went actually into singles there's some tens and there's some twenties in there just because if I had extra cash, because I don't carry cash ever, yeah. it went back into the piggy bank. So those are my major goals. Oh, sorry, I had one more goal. Uh, I want to read 25 books 
well, let me re rephrase that. I wanted to consume 25 books throughout the year. So if you're a, a classic reader, um, you might not think audible or listening to books is, is the same as actually having a hard copy, hard copy paper book or um, in your hand. So consuming 25 books throughout the year, and I think I'm currently at 40 or 41. So I have a lot of shield time with my job at M3 Insurance. I, I travel to Eau Claire, Green Bay, Milwaukee, Wausau, and uh, obviously I'm out of Madison, so I get a lot of screen time. <laughs> or shield time, I should say, not screen time. That is outstanding. What? Let me ask you, before we dig into some other things here, out of the 41, how many of those do you feel like you're, you've, you're going to remember? It's tough. Um, I would say I remember bits and pieces from a variety of the, mm -hmm. like the stories, whether they were, um, you know, not necessarily self-help, but like educational in, in nature, like a, the, the Science of Timing by Daniel Pink. Um, or that, you know, I was, we were discussing Brene Brown's um, The Gift of Imperfect Parenting. Uh, and then, you know, jumping into some more of, like, the, the murder mysteries. I'm, I'm huge into those. Um, some, some good fiction, too? Yeah, absolutely. I'm probably more fit, fiction than I am nonfiction or, like, even tutorials. Hmm. Um, because it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity for my brain to, to close out everything else, right? <laughs> it's kind of my opportunity to jump into a story where... I'm not the main character, and I'm I'm living life through somebody else's lens. Oh, exactly. I in a less sophisticated, less sophisticated way. That is, uh, Dateline and Forty Eight Hours yeah. are like my calming. Yeah. It sounds ridiculous, but at the end of a day, you turn on a Dateline. I can't make it fifteen minutes, and I, and these are awful, tragic murder mm -hmm. mysteries, but they will put me to sleep. It's one of the most peaceful things, and I think it's because it has less to do with the actual content, but it's just no longer thinking about yourself and everything that you have to do, and you just completely shut everything off, and then there's a story that's being told. Mm -hmm. And so while it should be riveting and scary, it's actually calming and soothing. Yeah. And so there's a lot to say about our, our love of murder mysteries. It's, yep. it's probably something that ages back to... Um, old murder ballads from the Kentucky <laughs> Hills of how how like popular murder ballads were in terms mm -hmm. of the early very early stages of country music. So I blame it on our it's part of our cultural DNA to love murder mysteries. Absolutely, I would one hundred percent agree with that. That's outstanding. And your goals, yeah, it's it is it is a uh, I had I set goals. I think. My goal setting process is, is on the face of it, probably not that much different if I would actually write down all the data points. But this year, so I, I grew up as a soccer player. Then when I graduated college, and I played lacrosse in college, so I want to talk to you about that soon. But I had turned into a runner and then just started adding miles, doing a few marathons, and then one of my close friends told me at some point I'm going to have to run further than Oprah Winfrey has run, which was his biggest compelling argument for why I should join the ultra-marathoning mm -hmm. culture and community, and immediately fell in love with that type of running and everything about it. It felt different than running a street marathon. I wasn't surrounded by people blazing the road trying to hit their best time. It was far more peaceful and calming and soothing, even though the distances were longer. I always felt more at peace running. 
But then I got to a point where I had tried run a 50K, 50 mile or 50K, and then decided I was going to run the 50K again and kind of went into it under-trained, just thinking I knew the course well enough that I'd figure it out. And you can't really cheat the pro. Like when you get into these, those distances, I, I learned you can't cheat that. But I also had started recognizing there was a little bit of a mental block going on. I, I had stopped really loving running, and mm-hmm. I kind of just felt like I was doing it. So I got about halfway into this 50K, and my family was home in Stevens Point. I'm down in Milwaukee in the South Kettles in the suburban Milwaukee area doing this run. Kind of just trying to figure out why am I doing it. This isn't much fun. And then a friend of mine, the same guy who had told me I needed to run longer than Oprah, was there to check on me from every at every rest stop. And I got to about halfway, and I was having some mild stomach cramping, which it was really hot, and that's kind of a normal process. I was tired, and I just decided halfway in, I think I'm done. Like, I didn't want to get back out on the trail and work through all of the stages mentally that you have to work through to continue on and finish a race because it's painful. You're going to have the ebbs and flows. And I didn't, I hadn't insulated myself from what was going to happen. And I felt pretty hollow and empty because for the longest time, that was like a central core activity. And in a lot of ways, it defines who we are. Like we think of ourselves, oh yeah, I, I do these. I'm the kind of person that would do these kinds of runs. And here I am feeling somewhat like I'm an imposter this time. And so as soon as I got in my car after having dinner with my buddy and heading home thinking, ah, oh, I'm going to get home and be able to go to bed and sleep and have my family there. But then I started feeling really bad about like who I was. And that was just this inescapable, painful thing that was going on. And like, okay, so if I don't run, like, what do I do? I need activity. Like I knew that much about myself. And for me, the physical activity is partly physical, but it's a lot of mental. I, I like the mental time that I have when I'm, when I'm exercising to think through everything. And so then you start to feel a little bit lost. And there was a CrossFit gym that had opened up down the road, and my wife had been telling me, oh, you should go try it so I could be the lab rat for the family. Like, go test it out. Well, then I decided, well, maybe, I don't know, like maybe this will be a good thing. So I went down and met with the owner. And he's an ex-hockey player who's missing a tooth and pretty raspy. And I'm like, man, okay, I think I kind of need you in my life right now. (laughs) I need you yelling at me. You know, not really, but in a way having someone else dictate my expectation a little bit and learn a completely new way to train. And some of the science behind it, I already, like I was on board with the science because Growing up as an athlete, you've done plyometric training, you've done some Olympic weightlifting. I'd done bit parts of it for every sport I've ever played, but it hadn't been put together in one package, and I understood the science behind interval training. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, I think I'll give it a try. And so I did, and for the past four or five years, like that, that became my core activity until about this past year. I started feeling like, eh, I want to start running again. So that was, it, it, it became my annual goal without really intending to be my goal because my wife then talked me into signing up for a marathon in November. And at first I was like, no, I just, I was just starting to get into liking going for long runs again. <clears throat> and then 
we ended up signing up for this marathon. And I discovered over these past few years, I'd kind of changed as an athlete too. So previously, I'd always had this wall around mile 20 that mm. you fight through. And this time, I kind of breezed right through that. And a lot of that I was crediting to kind of falling, like falling back in love with running, but also being a different athlete altogether through different strength training I had done. So <clears throat> I got through that marathon and felt really wonderful. And then one of my friends who also has been doing a lot of other ultras, 50 milers and 100 miler, milers had been agging me on about signing up for a 50 miler. So I had to make a decision this past weekend because mm. the registration period is short. If you don't get in, you don't get in. So I had about a two-hour window of time to register for the race. So as soon as noon hit yesterday, logged in, signed up. So on my 2020 calendar this year is my is a 50-miler. So it would be my first one since 2012 of it. that distance. So yeah. I'm excited. I, <laughs> I wish I had the analytics sometimes. Like, you know, as you're going through all the different data points that you're hitting, I'm... I do those, but I don't ever record or think about it. For me, I go, like, I just set the idea out there and then try and chase it however I need to. Yeah. So <clears throat> I want to say thank you for sharing that because I think what one of the messages that I would take from what you just talked about is depending on where you're at in life can really adjust to determine where, where you want to go, right? Mm -hmm. So if I think about your story and then relate it back to mine, um, right out of college as I'm trying to get back into shape, right, to to do everything I want to do, I started running a lot. And then I took a huge gap, very similar to yours, because <clears throat> I, I'd fallen out. I, I wouldn't even never say I was in love with running, but I loved, to your point, that mental, um, mental opportunity to, to clear my mind. Mm -hmm. If I have a stressful day, you name it, what's my avenue? It's running or biking. I need to almost punish myself to, to sweat out that stress. Yeah. Um, I also had never been really one to track anything but mileage. So I just wanted to see where I was at and where I was going. If you told me to count calories, I, I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. I can't do that. Like that's just not part of my DNA to be able to kind of like fine tooth comb it to say, okay, this is what I've done or this is how much I've eaten. For me, it is like until I got an Apple watch to track it, I didn't really know. Mm -hmm. Um, but it keeps me cognizant of how much I'm actually moving. So, um, ultra marathon, right? Or is it more trail running for you versus the road running? Like what, what initially besides your friend, when you got out there, like what was it that kept you pushing? It was, there were a few things. So I think at this, at the stage when I started doing ultra marathons, I was, I was hungry for an adventure mm -hmm. and I've always been at, like, there's a lot of reasons why I love Joseph Campbell <laughs> and the hero's journey. There's a lot of like um, rebirth process when you go into the forest and you discover something about yourself. So not always like a complete deconstruction of who you are and rebirthing and all that, but but I've always been very much part of my spiritual being. So I, I don't call myself a religious person, mm -hmm. but I, I think I, I can be very spiritual about these journeys that we take. I, I love the spiritual part of it. I love the feeling of accomplishing something that's kind of bigger than you. Mm -hmm. And it takes 
you to a different place. It, it makes you negotiate and navigate paths that you need to create. So running, the marathons I had done were all street marathons with thousands of people and just burners, you know. Yep. So, and and I wanted, and I but I always loved trail running. And part of that could be that I grew up in, uh, not in a very pretty uh, environment for trail running in Tulsa. There's not a lot of trails. There are now, but when I was growing up, there wasn't. There was a lot of um, neighborhoods or streets that were pretty dangerous to run on. So when I moved up here and found trails that you could run on, it was just it's a really cool thing for me. Mm-hmm. So I was already loving trail running, but there was this thought of going into the forest and then coming out of it. Like, would I be... How would I feel about that accomplishment? Would I feel better about my skills, my confidence? Mm-hmm. You know, there's all those things that we go through as athletes, but or in our athletic pursuits or other pursuits. It could be music and art too, but we, it, it's that journey. Like, mm-hmm. I love the journey, and sometimes it's kind of sad when you get to the end of that. And so when I, when I got out and I was able to do, the first one I did was a 38-mile night run. So I started at 8 p.m., and then you, within an hour, you have your headlamp on, and I'm running through single-track trails with a headlamp. Took a couple falls, but mm-hmm. start running into packs, through packs with different groups of people, and it's just this, this subculture of running that was new to me that I loved. It was people aren't out there to perform. Like in marathons, you see people burning through, and there's runners, and these people are are hardcore runners and the same is true for trail running but it's completely different sometimes and it's a little more um, social and interesting because of the type of trail running that it requires you to do but then I also loved going into the forest and coming out to these where the like the rest stop huts and full of people waiting for all their loved ones and their friends to get off the trail and come say hi and then Go find the next spot and just continue to find the next spot. And then, you know, marathons, you're used to seeing water tables, maybe some goo packs and a couple pieces of fruit. And when you go into the ultra trail runs, you're, you walk out and you're like, oh, there's potatoes and M&Ms and pretzels. And I, yeah, maybe I should have a ham sandwich. That sounds like a good idea. So it changes a lot of the things that you're doing as a runner too. And it was just interesting and fun. And But I think that, that first time when I, when I did it, I also had this incredible experience of then watching the sunrise as I'm finishing my race. So you, I got to turn my headlamp off in the last half an, half an hour or so of the run and finish and then realize I just ran 38 miles through the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and then you underplayed it so well. I mean, that's a phenomenal, <laughs> just even like a story or thinking about where you started and where you went. Because I would... 100% agree that trail running is a, a different experience than road mm-hmm. running. And I'm much more happy if I can go out and get on a trail run. So I live, my house is a half mile off the Ice Age Trail. Okay, good. So I have, I can go both north and south on it. And that to me is just, you know, I'm, again, I'm not a religious person, but spiritual in the sense like where it, it values and morals, whatever. But I am mentally much in a better place if I hit the trail versus the road. Oh, yeah. Which is just different. Um, and honest, I, I would I would take it, are you familiar with Cam Haynes? Cameron mm. Haynes? Yeah. Um, I started following him after I think he had a 
conversation with David Goggins. Mm -hmm. And, you know, their whole mentality is nobody cares, work harder, like, you know, go out and pursue whatever it is, whatever you're trying to do. Um, but Cam had just done a uh, an ultra, I think, a few weeks ago, and and he was he was talking about like kind of the success that he's having, or like the mental battles and part of like what you go through when you're doing those ultra. Mm-hmm. Which I don't think, unless you do something that's going to tax you that much, you don't understand it. And he was talking about kind of the pain that he went through, and again, whether it was physical or mental, because that. Both is put, putting some serious tax on the body. Yeah. But he's like, you know, I was happy, right? Because I, I hit that mental wall. I hit that physical wall. I perceived and I pushed through it. But he's like, you know what? I, I, that's why I do it because I'm I'm searching for that pain because I've earned it. Yeah. Right? It's like, like it's almost, it's weird to think about, right? Like as a, as a not a goal, but an earning of the pain that you put yourself into just to succeed and surpass that. Yeah. Yeah, I totally, I totally believe in that. It, and it is this, it is curious, you know, it's, it is this thing for me, every, every marathon I ever run, it was awesome and dreadful at the same time. And I'd always get into the last four or five miles and I just, I was in pain, but then it ends. Mm-hmm. So you end in pain. Yep. What I learned in, when you get into longer distances is that you weather through that to where Every race I finished, I really wasn't in too much pain. I'd gone through the pain phase. Mm-hmm. I'd accepted it, and yeah, I was just I was sore, but it was different. I was happier. There was a there was an emotional difference in those races, and and so that's been critical for me. And so over this period of time, when I didn't have this for a while, I just didn't want to run at all. I just kind of like I'm done. Yeah. I need to. I need to do some other things and started doing CrossFit. And, and I've always had soccer too as, as a high school soccer coach and, and playing some with my guys. And I don't play any adult league or, around here, but for me, that's always been something that's there too. But then, like I said, this past year, I just I started feeling the need to go do more running and go do longer runs. And then, and then my wife, who's, who's definitely a street more... Friend, more street friendly runner and loves burning through marathons and so when she talked me into it it was it's in the middle of my soccer season and, and like I said at first I'm like I, I, I don't know if I can train but then she's like yeah come on do it and I thought about it I'm like well yeah I mean yeah I'm going to be under trained so if I think of it like a training run rather than I'm racing I might have some fun mm-hmm. and that's what happened I ended up having so much more fun than I've ever had in a street marathon it was it was one of my slowest races, but I really, I didn't have a, and I didn't really, I had a kind of a goal in mind, but I didn't really have a goal in mind. I just wanted to finish and finish happy. Yeah. And then when I did, I'm like, okay, I think I'm ready. I think yeah. I'm ready to get this part of my life back. Yeah. And it's been, it's been neat. Well, I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier too, right? It's, it's redefining your success, mm-hmm. right? And, and what is success to you? And, and for you in that particular time was I'm, I want to enjoy the experience, right? And it's that journey, um, but also be comfortable with regardless of how I end, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. I, I, I love that. And yeah. it's, but it's every, everybody's different, right? So at tw- mile 20, you might start feeling that pain. And I could tell you like as I'm increasing mileage, I still feel that pain at mile two, Yeah. right? bookend spectrums right but everybody needs to understand that it's it's not a light switch it's not on and off like we don't get to where we're at today by you know it wasn't just overnight like it's a pursuit 
like however wherever you got to like where you're at right now understand that it's not necessarily like linear in time but to get back to where you want to be it's a it's a mindset it's adjustment but it's it's picking away right. so to speak so smaller smaller goals yeah and doesn't that talk doesn't that speak so much too like if you I, I want you to define for me like wellness so I, I want you to think think about that I want you to define that for me but when we start talking to people about how what so let's process wellness so so what does it mean how do you make it part of your life and what are we what are we talking about with people and a lot of times it's that it is it's often misconstrued and there's a misconception about when we talk about wellness or it's been co-opted by so many other people the actual definition of it is completely lost mm-hmm. um, we all kind of, but it's not rocket science either like we all know that our well-being is is central to us but defining it and getting someone to agree to be committed to living a well life is it's a hard it's a really hard journey and i think it's oftentimes people set themselves up for failure by either having expectations that are too great or that they haven't defined what success looks like mm-hmm. which we've talked about or they haven't built an environment that really allows them to live not necessarily just make a change but like to sustain a change too so sometimes the change isn't the hardest part for someone but it's the sustainability of that change yeah. which is really critical and so how do we how do we define how can we define wellness in a way that makes better sense to people yeah, I think that's that's a challenge, right? It's because you have so many different definitions, mm-hmm. right? And you made a, a couple key points that I want to talk about. But for me, wellness is this, again, a holistic approach of, of what defines you being well. So it's not like the absence of illness. It's, it is, yeah, how can I be happy? How can I be healthy? How can I make a, um, a sustainable life change? to be healthier. And you mentioned like atomic habits, right? Mm-hmm. And that 1% change. Like I haven't read the book, but there's a lot to be said about just small changes. And if you can do those small changes, because people do get caught in this big grand scheme of like, I will be, uh, I'll, I'll be healthier. I'll be more valued, whatever it might be if I lose X amount of pounds. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, like let's, let's change that. Let's just think about those smaller opportunities. So if you're a soda drinker and I don't want to like, bash the soda industry or whatever your <laughs> issue might be, but like added sugars, whatever it might be. Like let's make some small concerted efforts in those areas just to pare it down. Mm-hmm. Right? Because yeah, I want to lose a hundred pounds, but that's again, it's not a light switch. Right. It's a that's a lot of effort. It's a lot of time. So if we can ch- change that success or that definition of success in people's minds, it becomes more approachable. Mm-hmm. Right. And how do you go about doing that? I would contend that as a society, we don't set our our population up for success. Mm-hmm. Period. Um, now, thinking about that, right? Um, how many fast food places can I stop just driving here? Right? Probably like ten in the, mm-hmm. the span of a mile. Right? There's a bar in every single corner. Right? So if I'm a tobacco user, but I only, I only smoke if I drink. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of environment are you putting yourself in? Mm-hmm. So how do we change or how do we enable people to live healthier lifestyles with the environment that's around them? Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest things, or I shouldn't say biggest, but one of the, the emerging trends I would say that I'm hearing about a lot is social determinants, mm-hmm. right? Um, what's around you? So my, if I'm a certified health coach and I'm trying to help you, Derek, on 
determining what's going to be the best avenue for you to reach your goals, all right, well, where's your zip code, right? Like, what are you into? Obviously, you're very passionate about CrossFit and running and, and living a lifestyle of being well, um, but most people don't understand that, mm-hmm. right? Even from a young age, we don't set them up for success. So if you think about your elementary school or even like middle school, um, you know, what did you have to eat from the lunch cafeteria? What Can you think back and tell me what your favorite meal was from elementary school? Oh, it was easily the uh, bean chowder and cinnamon roll day. Well, there you go. So <laughs> think, about the, think about the calories, right? And like the stuff that was in there. I thought about this on the way up. I don't know how it came in my brain, but every like Friday, they had those like fake little pizzas. Yeah. That was like on a toast. That was mine. Yeah. But I was like the, the kid that brought lunch from home because that's what my, my family was all about. <laughs> so I was that kid. Uh, I, didn't ha- I didn't get to have that pizza. When I did, I loved it. But from that standpoint, right, like what are we, what are we educating our kids on, like the different types of vegetables, right? Like right. what can they use or like what can they eat? Like we're not setting people up for success mm-hmm. at all. Um, the same thing goes like uh, with technology, right? We talk about screen time. To reduce screen time is a challenge, right? We're at work in front of computers or like as soon as people get off the phone, they're in a manufacturing setting, they're, they're on their phone, mm-hmm. right? So um, when I kind of want to bring that back full picture to, you know, you're super involved, coaching soccer, you want your wife wants you to do this marathon, well, I'm not going to have enough time to train, right? Mm-hmm. Well, where do we allocate our time to? Right. Like for you, you have focus areas that you're allocating time, but for people who are maybe not into like so many different things well how do you allocate your time and where do you invest your time like what's the most important to you so if i can if i can get people to understand like what wellness is from maybe their lens so i'm more concerned about how do you define wellness Mm -hmm. how can i meet you where you're at and then how can i help you up with maybe just incremental things so small changes to build a bigger lifestyle that's going to be a healthier lifestyle yeah yeah when i and i love that there is a lot of conversation going on in the field today, we went through this phase where, so like in the 70s and early 80s, the first people that were practicing and talking about wellness were people who didn't have an academic background in wellness. Mm-hmm. They came from different disciplines, but they all had an agreement that what we need to be talking more about is is prevention, but that, that involves this interconnectedness of different parts of our lives that lead to us having a more successful existence if you rely on like the national wellness's original definition of wellness was this pathway to successful existence. So, okay, that helped, but it didn't clarify things enough. And then we got into a phase where that definition started becoming defined by activities or practices in order to make you healthier mm-hmm. to avoid disease like you talked about there was a, a period where we talked about wellness where we're talking about the absence of illness okay yep. that that's great i mean there's there, there's something to be said there but that's still missing the point and so and then we went through phases where we were so heavy in risk mitigation that wellness in large part and it's still true today when you talk about it at a corporate level it's about risk reduction and cost absolutely savings. Well, that kind of takes the heart and soul out of what we're talking about here. And so when we talk about wellness is what we're really talking about is someone who feels that they have somewhat of a control of their life 
and the choices that they're making and they're in an environment that they can operate in that helps them lead a better life. So that's really heavy and complex too. Mm-hmm. And so, and then you, you start to see these conversations coming up now where we're talking about things like resiliency. A lot of talk about that. We're talking a lot about values and, and, and you have your Vic Streckers and Ryan Piccarella and others that are bringing these out into the forefront where they're talking about, let's talk about wellness as a values-based process strategy and, and way of living that that all of this talk about risk reduction doesn't help someone live a better life it may help them be aware of the condition that they have or may have but it doesn't get to the core of our being and mm-hmm. so uh, one of my good friends Sean Foy and I've had these long discussions about that existential journey of the soul and wellness really if we can figure a way to corner that conversation into every conversation we have about wellness, then we might get people to pay attention to living well and letting them define, like you said, like define what does that mean? Because it may mean so many different things to so many different people and their vision of living well is different and yet we need to make sure that we never indicate that there's a right or wrong Mm -hmm. answer to that, but that there are some tenets to that that are important. Like, are we resilient? Are we able to handle challenges in our life? Do we connect with others? We know that isolation mm-hmm. is one of the primary risk factors for all different sorts of illness and or mental health related issues. We know that isolation is a critical problem. Now, show me where isolation shows up in a health risk assessment mm-hmm. or in blood work. It doesn't initially, but if we talk to people who have certain conditions, we may find that isolation is something that is a common thread through a lot of their lives. You know, absence of family history, which is obviously a strong indicator when we start talking about how people are living, a lot of people that have isolation end up having unhealthier lives in several different ways. So there is a way for us to somewhat measure that as well, but we need people to be connected. We also know that people that are creative have in some ways a better sense of living well though and i don't want to get into the deep dive of what that means we can get into tons of conversation on what that means but research continues to show that creativity is critical to us having um having i guess you could say optimal health so in different ways and then we also need people to practice care and understand when they don't feel good is there something that they can do differently to help them get better. That doesn't mean you go to a hospital. That may mean mental health and mental health related issues. It could be just feeling down. It could be issues of conflict at work. It could be several different things that start to become indicators of or lead factors into other things that are impacting our lives. So all of those things kind of come into and it's really been nice to see that advancing in the field. So when we talk about wellness, we're not just talking about nutrition. We're not talking about steps. We're not talking about, you know, physical health, physical activity alone, but we're talking about each of those as they are important to someone in how they vision and what their vision for their life is. Yep. And so those those are things that I think are starting to in, seep into those definitions of wellness, and it's been really good to see in our field. I'd 100% agree. One of, the, one of the things I want to touch on that you mentioned was resiliency, mm-hmm. right? Um, we are in a, a, an interesting space right now from a, a cultural standpoint in the U.S. where, um, you know, 
if, if I was to offer up my two cents on, you know, even youth sports into collegiate sports, like resiliency in and of itself is dealing with, uh, you know, struggle, right? Mm-hmm. So you hear the terms like helicopter parenting or like that kind of mindset. Um, how would you go about changing that resiliency? Like, right, because we're, again, in a weird, awkward space where, where we're not allowing our kids to fail as much. If that makes sense, we need to to understand, you know. Again, it's a, the definition of success. But you're running into a wall. How do you how do you take those and and uh, change your mindset to be more resilient? Right. There's little pieces that you can do. But even adults who haven't experienced that, the hardships and like the, how do they, um, like how do they understand that? Like how do they process those emotions and how do they move forward with, like developing those skill sets? Yeah. Yeah, it you well, we could have a whole nother episode yeah. on on sports alone, and and having been a coach, and I've been coaching high school soccer for twenty years and college soccer. So, and I've been then I've also been involved in youth development. So, I've seen the full spectrum of of athletes, and I've also seen this over more than twenty years. I, and mm-hmm. I'm now hitting about my 25th year of coaching, of real coach. I mean, full team, being a head coach, all of it. So, and I do, I do worry. There, there's a part, and I, and I discussed this, I believe, with, on an earlier podcast, we had, we brought this, we were talking about athletes. And the one thing that I, I think that I, I do get troubled by is that the culture we live in is also very image conscious. Mm-hmm. And so what does that mean to like a young person who's an athlete that I think that there's sometimes that that we're not putting in the work it takes to be excellent because of a couple like you talk about like there's a fear of failure and mm-hmm. sometimes we we want to create cocoons and environments where where there's a safety net for something like sports. I don't think there should ever be a safety net for sport because in order to succeed, you have to go through your phases of failure. Yep. No team wins a championship because they just show up. They've usually been a team that's lost, and and you go through these stepping stones of going through losing in order to get to winning. That's across the board in every sport. That's how you get to the top. But we fail to recognize that sometimes in in developing young athletes that we don't give them the chance to fail, and then. We just expect them to know how to succeed. Like th- those things don't work together. And I also fear that because of our image conscious culture, that we that it's more important to have a jersey than it is to actually have done the work to get it. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Like sometimes, and so when you so when push comes to shove, then in in athletic pursuits and contests, there isn't much grit there, because there was no grit to get the yep. to get the jersey. And so there is some of that in. And did it in this environment where we give a medal to everyone, you know, and yeah. I don't want to get into that discussion. No, me either. You know, but but it there is there is this in this cultural sensitivity towards not to you know to kind of insulate our youth from failure because I don't know why. As a coach, I look at it like no, every day I want every day I want practices. Every, my training model is to create failure. Mm. along the way to make it so hard that there's failure 
So then we figure out successful routes for success. You know, like, I and I just use success twice. That's all right. It's but it, it comes back to like a lot of what we're talking about, right? It's there's this huge pursuit in order for you to appreciate the end result mm-hmm. of that product and whatever that definition for that end is for you. Which I just think there's a lot to be said about that, where you do need to fail in order to get to where you're at. Yeah. Right. Like that. That to me. You know, again, back to my question was, how do we build that resiliency? And I, I love your your training model of, I'm trying to produce failure to get results, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, I mean that's, and there's a if you read stuff, you know, especially in the athletic field, John Morgan's, you know, the energy bus and the hard hat, like, and 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 it's not lost. You read any anything about any successful coach, and there's a lot of these creating cultural environments where failure is normal and just think about that like we we create tough training environments so failure is normal so then that growth happens Mm -hmm. but and it's also done in a way that that's just part of our cultural fabric and so we don't fear it we don't mock it we don't make fun of anything about the process or people that fail it's no we all of us are failing together along the same path to greatness because that's where we're going to learn the most about how to get there. You know, if you think about, so bringing that back to wellness, like often that's that's the loop that doesn't get connected sometimes. So we know we could probably make a, a list of all the different things we've seen in the field of people that are trying to make a behavior change, but then they fail and then it just ends there. Yep. It goes on the scrap heap of, really bad ideas that I tried this last year. So, you know, for people sometimes who are making New Year's resolutions, like most Mm -hmm. of them fail. Well, um, and oftentimes that leads to people not following through on living a better life because, well, the failure, the fear of failure is sitting there because there's that scrap heap of all the other things we tried and failed at without taking a step back and thinking, okay, is my environment suited to help me live a better life? Why am I living a better life? Have I figured out my why? Mm-hmm. Have I figured question. out my why? Because we know that those are two, the two, probably the two most critical things that they set the template for success. And everything else becomes a strategy of defining that success in measurable, you know, in somewhat measurable ways, not always measurable, but sometimes measurable ways of progress and slow enough and steady enough that we change our lives for good. Yep. And that's that's the goal. And, and this whole fear of failure and, and, and our cult, our sensitivity to that mm-hmm. is really, it's, it's a struggle in more ways than just youth that's sports. Right. So how do we, you're in the field, you're in the cultural, you're in the corporate culture field. So you work on the broker insurance side. And so... You're knee deep in ROI analysis, data analytics on what wellness programs work at the companies. So you understand the sensitivity of that culture. But but I want to ask you, so what everything we just talked about is probably not going to show up in an ROI report to some degree, unless we change the way we do our ROI analysis. So how what what can you say about our corporate wellness and, and how can we how can we move our organizational cultures to understand these things that we've been talking about with regards to wellness? Yeah. Again, a great question. I would, I would align it in, um, very much from like a personal pursuit too. 
So when you think about uh, pers pers uh, personal goals, personal pursuits, as far as what you're trying to accomplish, um, you know, you're you're setting a goal, you're defining that success. From a worksite wellness standpoint, it's very similar in the sense of, okay, well, what is the organization's goals, right, as it relates to wellness, and how do we move them forward in those those areas? Um, each organization is going to be 100 percent different, right? Like they could be a manufacturing side by side, but they're both going to have different um, ideas of what success are. So ROI or VOI or VOC. So first off, understanding what does your organization feel about those different areas, right? Do you want an ROI? Well, if I'm telling you that, like I'm probably not going to be able to give you a hard, fast ROI. Mm -hmm. I can make some um, assumptions on risk avoidance and cost reduction, but to say that you know Derek came to see me for this specific thing, right, whether it's, it's weight loss or it's prediabetes, you name it. How do I know 100% sure that everything that I'm doing on the wellness front from a worksite standpoint is really what's driving that change? Mm -hmm. You know, you alluded to intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation mm -hmm. earlier. And part of, um, you know, this evolution of wellness from a worksite standpoint, uh, you know, is, is trying to trying to adjust people's mind frame so that they're not so driven from that, that extrinsic incentive because we're starting to learn that um, you know, we can offer six to $800 per year for, for you to participate in the program because it ultimately changing your behaviors. Mm -hmm. With certain populations, I would, con I would contend no, mm -hmm. right? Like it's not necessarily driving behavior. So how can I, in a work site, I'm trying to build a bigger picture, right? How can I, in a work site, intrinsically motivate you or to your earlier point, understanding your why? Why am I doing this? Is it to run that ultra? Is it just to be, um, you know, a great grandparent or a parent to be able to do the things I want to do with my kids and my grandchildren? Defining that from a worksite standpoint, you mentioned the word culture. Mm -hmm. Now, culture is what all organizations are trying to build and to provide to their employees. Um, culture is not the same thing as climate or environment, right? So, culture is a beneficiary to those things, I would say. Culture is your everything that's going into it. So one of the conversations that I'm having with organizations now is, is how do I build out, and I know I put in quotations, well-being or wellness program, right? Mm -hmm. But if, if a VOI or the value of my investment is kind of my end goal, I want to think about the other areas of wellness that, that we don't necessarily talk about. So we usually talk about your point in the 70s, physical activity, nutrition, in the 70s, also with the big spa movement, right? That's where like a lot of people started in the spa, that there was that holistic approach, um, but it wasn't necessarily one of the number one things. Mm -hmm. So within workplaces now, for me, it's how do I build out or how do I help you build out a workplace experience that is holistic in nature? So, um, you know, at M3, we, we focus on four pillars, physical, social, emotional, and financial. And we try to pare that down for people so that they, they're thinking about all the additional, what um, you know, your benefit package. It's not just about, okay, we're gonna do biometric screenings and I'm gonna give you some data. Um, we might have a financial component to you. We're gonna fill out a financial health assessment and figure out what's next for you. Is that starting a 401k or 403b account or a will and testament? And, and setting our people up from success on a variety of different outlets. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's this workplace experience that, you know, we talk about absenteeism, presenteeism, and those extra things. We want to build a picture of 
wellness for us at M3 includes um, dressing for your day, uh, having a mobile, flexible, and connected workforce. Um, we're going to offer those fitness facilities on site or be near a biking path. Uh, we're going to provide you with healthy uh, foods to eat by subsidizing our lunch program. Um, to the tune of a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to make sure that we're building environment to set you up for success. So it's um, kind of one of the, the points that I also make is there is some wellness fatigue in the market. Mm -hmm. And uh, this continuum or the spectrum that we're on from a wellness standpoint, I would say the last 10 to 15 years we were very heavy into the data analytics and trying to prove ROI and that's the wellness world setting ourselves up for, um, for failure, really. Because mm -hmm. we, I think in the early 2000s, we said, oh, yeah, three to one wellness ROI. Yeah. Well, as we started having that conversation, your, your VPs, your presidents, your CFOs, they wanted that number, mm -hmm. right? What is that hard, fast number? Why am I investing in wellness? Well, when you couldn't deliver on that, right, like, where do you put yourself? You, right. Right? <clears throat> you didn't set yourself up for success. So... The transition in the world that I'm living right now is changing the conversation from ROI to VOI. And I think the greater wellness world is doing that. Um, but again, it's defining what does that company see as that the success point? Because yeah. when you had mentioned earlier, how do you sell wellness or like how are we selling wellness mm -hmm. to these people? It's understanding one, who I'm selling to, what are we trying to sell, what's our purpose behind it? And it goes back to, to what we learned in school is our mission, our vision, and our goal. Mm -hmm. right? And if that's a consistent thread through the, the organization where, again, the Wellcoa 7 benchmarks to success will lead you down that pathway, um, it's, it's making sure that you have everything in place to be able to say, this is why we're doing it. These are our metrics. And explaining to the people that are the employees of that organization that, you know, we might try to get data, but it's ultimately to help you live a healthier lifestyle so you understand your numbers and how you move forward. Yeah. Um, which there's an emerging trend now, too. So are you familiar with, like, where... I won't say this is where biometrics are going, mm -hmm. but uh, they're starting to build in genetic testing. Mm -hmm. So Apple just approved it through their on-site clinic where you can go get genetically tested and you can see where your, your predispositions are from, mm -hmm. like, a health standpoint. Again, timing is key. I met with um, two UW students last week, and they're building this coaching platform. It's called, I don't even want to, I don't, they're building a coaching platform. <laughs> I don't know where it's at, where it's going, really, yeah. but a coaching platform where they can take results from like a, was it 23 and 23 me, like a genetic testing, put it into their platform and be able to say, these indicators are scientifically proven to help you change where and how you're at right now. So genetically, I might be um, predisposed to being not being able to process like simple carbs very well. So I know in my family, we love our carbs, but I know it's not going to be good for me because yeah. I'll start to hoard those calories and I, it's hard for me to get rid of them. Um, so in the future, I see that as, a, as an interesting concept and an opportunity for us, but it only builds that big brother like concern. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some value. Obviously, there's value. The marketplace is always going to show what has value and what doesn't. 23andMe is so successful. So there's value there. But then I, I agree. Like, And these are the steps that we probably should have been taking with Facebook and some mm. social media years ago where we ask ourselves some value-based questions about do we really – first of all, do we, do we need this? And then if we do, how do we need it? And how do we make sure that we oh, take yeah. care of it? And so one of the – and one of the great – 
books I've read lately um, involves Facebook and some of the early warning signs of the how their algorithms were being built. Mm -hmm. So then how would that lead to people's decision-making processes? So if everything is based on an algorithm and everything's based on clicks, then what rises to the top is the most clicked and what yeah. rises to the top is usually the most excitable, which isn't always either true or effective. Um, and then that becomes our, in some way, the, the hegemony of that group of people in their worldview. And that's kind of what we see today. Yeah, so 100%. I would say you know, we talk about resiliency and we talk about like, you know, setting our, our kids up for success or whatever it might be. Social media has given us a platform where you see the bookends of life, or that's mm -hmm. how I define it. The yeah. really good or the really, really bad. Um, and I, I jumped off of Facebook probably, it's been three years ago now. Yeah. And it was a product of, you know, people I went to high school with, what was happening in the political atmosphere. Um, and to your point of like, the most clickable is at the top. And yeah. I didn't necessarily want to see that. That's not why I started Facebook. And it's honestly one of those reasons I'm actually, um, I won't say upset at Instagram, but they changed their algorithm of, of what was the top. It mm -hmm. used to be the most recently post, and I could I could actually understand where in this timeline of photos that I'm looking at where I started and I stopped. Right. And now I can just flip for hours and never know what was the last post that I yeah. saw. And never see like my close family and friends of so one of the reasons I have this is so I can see their photos, yeah. right? Because I do want to see their successes. And unfortunately, I don't necessarily want to see their, their failures, but some of those get posted. Um, so I, I struggle with that sense. Like, yeah, should we be doing this? We never ask those questions. It's the yeah. same thing with what I worry I thought you were, or I think you're going is that genetic testing, like should we be doing it? Right. And how do we take care of it so that we value it? And tie it into like you get to this if we talk about a holistic experience then this is a part of it mm -hmm. and, and can we can we use it in an effective way that does help people as opposed to scaring them absolutely or does it lead to like you said you know this big brother mentality well why do we have the big brother mentality is because it feels like that mm -hmm. in with the way that a lot of social media acts and and, but we're stuck in this position where social media is a is so massively powerful and effective. Yeah. And it's a good way to get information out. Like the podcast we're doing, I'm going to blast out on all the social media because that's where people are looking for. Absolutely. That's how they get it. So, and then, but there are those trials and tribulations of, well, how do these work? So the science behind Facebook is reckless and dangerous. Mm -hmm. And it leads to the problems that they're having today in the discussions that we're having and yet it is something that we use because oftentimes we need to use for groups of people that need to communicate to each other or a place where we can share the best things about our lives that we want yep. and so here we are with that you know and so what does that mean for our wellness or like I, I liken it there was a, a, a presenter that I brought in for a keynote for our Ascension Wellness Summit a couple of years ago Mitch Martin's who talked a lot about, it goes back to kind of what you were saying about this, this build the workplace experience. And his mm -hmm. job, it was at Cedar sinai he was head of their wellness, their internal wellness program, and he spoke about the choice architecture. 
have we built something where everyone feels like it's a part of what the organization is tied to the mission values but it's our this is who we are and this is what we do that's always been the that's always been at the center of why people make change and and why they are impacted by their work culture is is this who we are and what we do and if i work here this is what i do because this is part of my workplace and so that's where that's where I feel like when we start talking about organizations is continue to drive organizations to build wellness so that it's part of the fabric and not yeah. a ten you know a ten thousand steps program off to the side that HR is managing just for yeah. click points to get your twenty five dollar gift card. Yep. Oh, and we are one hundred percent still there, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> right. That's we, the that's the tough discussion we're having. And <laughs> and what I've almost been in this field for just under fifteen years, and we've made progress, but it's been glacial. Right. Mm-hmm. It's pretty slow. But with when you work with big organizations, everything's pretty slow. There's yeah. checks and balances regardless of where you're at. Um, but redefining that and and really building a platform for what I always say to groups is enable your employees to live the healthier lifestyle and and make that healthy choice, the easy, and if possible, the most cost-efficient option, right? So I don't, I'm not the wellness type of person that will tell you to get rid of everything. I, I abide by more of that 80-20 rule, like, you know, if you follow The Rock on Instagram, you see a Sunday night cheat meals, uh-huh. like three pints <clears throat> right, of ice cream and two plates of sugar, like cookies, you name it. But it's, it's a balance within your life to, to your point, the choice. You are making that choice. Yeah. So back to my really early point from a cultural standpoint, like how can we start to develop healthier choices at a more of a cost-efficient opportunity? Mm-hmm. Because marketing and promotion right now of organic foods or healthy choices, what's one of the number one things that people assume? It's too expensive. I can't mm-hmm. do that. Well, there's opportunities to be able to afford the healthier options if we make a choice on What's the most important to me? Um, and from a financial standpoint, I couldn't tell you how many times in the past month I've talked about financial choices and how that directly affects your wellness, mm-hmm. right? So let's say you you know, you know, would make $12 an hour, wherever that might be, where do you put your money, mm-hmm. right? Like are you setting, if you have kids, are you setting them up for success in the future to be better off than you were? Or do you have a $700 car bill and a smartphone and a cable provider that's going to charge you $150, $160 a month, right? Like that's $1,000 worth of spending a month right there that isn't necessary. Mm-hmm. I would contend no. Mm-hmm. Um, but can we change their their mindset to be able to make a different or a healthier choice? Right. Um, you know, and, and back to like the work site, um, it's that big brother approach or that mindset I think was – you know, unfortunately, if wellness were to the wellness industry was to take a look in the mirror, I would say we probably did a lot of it to ourselves mm-hmm. by how programs were set up. But that's not to a fault of of us. That's just what we thought was best at the time. Right. Right. And if if we're continually like thinking about how do we evolve wellness or how do we change the conversation, how do we get people to understand it? It is the approach on how the worksite takes it. Is that we again going back to carrot or stick approach? Um, I'd say how it's marketed and, and communicated really will will drive that that mentality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's where that's that is where we are today with the our corporate discussions. But it echoes exactly what we had been discussing about wellness in general and mm-hmm. choosing to live a better life and 
And hopefully those conversations become easier with corporations as they value the absenteeism, presenteeism, turnover, and the, and the, the idea that wellness is part of the fabric yeah. and not a part, not just a side-off program. Well, and your, your, your culture is not built in a day, right? period. Like, if you think some of the major, like, organizations out there that just have it within their fabric, mm-hmm. right, you can think of some major, probably some key organizations that are fairly large that, you know, if you were to work for, you would just assume that's going to have a, mm-hmm. a cultural wellness feel, mm-hmm. right? Like, you think maybe the North Face, you think of, like, the Treks of the world, you mm-hmm. think that's their product is a... A byproduct of like just how their their culture was, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just interesting. I don't know. We yeah. could probably have an entire conversation <laughs> around this as well, but we sh- yeah, I think we're definitely gonna have to come have to have you come back for round two, for round two, round three. <laughs> um, the last, so my last question to you. Yeah. I so you're the you're the leading scorer on the lacrosse team in freshman freshman year, first so, year. Um, I would say a cumulative um, across the board, like the the all time leading score for you. Okay, all time. So, do you still hold that today? Uh, as far as I know, yes. Excellent. Um, it's interesting. That was one of those pursuits of a cross in and of itself that I, I wanted to do something in college, but I had no idea what my avenues were besides, yeah. you know, just be having this newfound freedom. And uh, I started it as you know something fun, and then pursued it pretty pretty hard yeah um you know i my freshman year i scored three goals right like not a lot Mm -hmm. um but then i i knew like i wanted to play this and i want to be good at it like i wanted to because like i again perfectionism right i knew i was never going to be like uh umll star or whatever it might be um but i wanted to be the best that i could possibly be yeah so when i went back home for the summer i found a men's league 45 minutes from my hometown it's the only place they were playing it <laughs> so i would drive every tuesday thursday night um and play lacrosse with these guys that were like leaps and bounds in front of me yeah. as far as the skill set uh, i was working in a manufacturing setting so it was one of those things that i didn't necessarily want to get up and do but yeah. I, I was super passionate about yeah. it um so I went from three goals uh, to 15 goals, to 30 goals, to 45 goals my, my senior year. So you just saw this incremental increase. Um, I was very fortunate. My was it my, my junior year, I was uh, the offensive MVP for the Upper Midwest Lacrosse League. Excellent. Um, and then my senior year was honorable mention All-American. So we're talking... I, and I don't even know if you still class, classify that as an All-American. I do. We will. There's honorable mention in front of it, but... You know, when you think about the schools that we were playing against, right, we played against Florida State, Georgia, Tennessee, um, a smattering of Michigan teams, University of Minnesota, um, and these, like Duluth, too, they were one of the top teams in the league and in, mm-hmm. in the nation. I think they were ranked 10th at one point in my senior year. Um, so it's not like we were playing against – it was a club sport, but it was sanctioned through the NCAA. So yeah. as it stands now, I could never go back to school and play – like D one, whatever it might be. So, yeah. uh, I don't know. I I loved that journey. It was a it was a learning experience. I met some great people and also had, I don't know, just the time of my life. You know? Yeah, it's one of those things that I'm I'm not the best athlete by any means, but um, I'm, I I don't know my drive. I would say and my you know ability to want to learn is probably one of the things that set me up for success. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I, we chatted briefly about it. I I so I went to college with the intent of playing soccer, but mm-hmm. I went to a college that also had lacrosse because 
growing up as a kid in Tulsa, I got to watch lacrosse on television. Yeah. And I always wanted a weapon. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't skate. So I figured yeah. lacrosse was my first, that was my first chance that I was given a weapon and said, yeah. I'm allowed to hit people. This is all sanctioned by the rules of the game. Yep. And and we had this experience at, at I went to Knox College Division Three school, but mm-hmm. lacrosse being a club sport, we got to play against Iowa, Iowa State. Yeah. You know, Illinois State and Illinois. And we typically beat most of those teams because we had just enough guys who grew up playing around the country. Knox had students from all over the country. So we'd always have this influx of like two or three guys that really knew what they were doing. Yep. Then we had a bunch of soccer and football players who were athletic enough to like run around them and help them out. <laughs> that's that's totally the UWSP team. Um, when I was a was it the year before I started? Maybe it was even the first semester. They had like eleven guys on the team, yeah. and that's like eighteen. Like you're not subbing anybody, right? And there's a lot of running in that game. Yeah. And we we had a few people that knew the skills and knew like what they needed to do. We had a great coach, Dr. John Munson. So yeah. familiar with him. Yeah. Uh, I, I could I could do an entire podcast just on that. Um, <laughs> both from a professional standpoint and like a a lacrosse standpoint, but he, um, he was, uh, I think an all American at Ohio state. So he yeah. knew the game. Yeah. We didn't know the game. Like if you, if you looked at both the team, like, so let's say we were playing the university of Minnesota and you were playing Stevens point. Mm-hmm. Like we were, we were rough around the edges. We didn't have necessarily, we had like five plays. We might've called two during the game. We yeah. were very much a, a, a run and gun. Let's get shots on goal. And then let's let our defense just try to stop. Yeah. Their attack. Um, so the detriment on our team was our offense didn't necessarily hold the ball a lot, so our defense got tired a lot. Yeah. So we needed to put up a lot of points in order to compensate for that. And that, as a as a team leader and the, the president of lacrosse club, my senior year, that that's on me again. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's one of those things that I didn't understand because I didn't know the game well enough to say this is what we need to do. We need to yeah. possess the ball on offense in order to like give them some time. Because we were up and down, and our middies had to have hated us because we—I mean, we were—we were putting shots on goal. As if we saw a little sliver, we were taking it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you, Tyler, for coming hey. today. Any last parting words? Oh man, we well, covered a lot of ground. We did, but I had so much I wanted, so much more I wanted to cover too. Well, right? good. Like, let's, there's. Let's get you back here. You know, like I. I in preparation for this, I, I listened to you know a few of your podcasts. So I'm just I feel very fortunate to be part of this this circle now <laughs> uh, on the highway to well. But you know, like especially Dr. Huck, right? You talked about some of his fishing and his super path, like yeah. his pastime and his passion. Like I didn't know you could be like a hunter of big fish, right? Yeah. Like, I think uh, there's just a lot more that I would love to chat about in the future. So if, if we do this again, I would love to get into that. Oh yeah. Um, I guess my some of my last words would be like you know the the thread that I feel like we've come up with through this conversation with and it, I would call it organically we didn't necessarily come out to to set or define or redefine what people's success is yeah whether that's individually or from a worksite standpoint um, but I feel like that's the big message today is let's figure out how you define success like how how do we build that into your your thought process as you go into twenty twenty what do you want to be successful in yeah right and 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 don't make it some big grand goal like start small and build your way up almost 15 years in this profession and i would i would have laughed at you um, if you told me i'd be running like 250 miles in a year and again not a big number but for me that was a huge undertaking because growing up i was never a runner yeah i wasn't this star athlete i'm still not a star athlete by any means but 
it's the, the passion and the drive and what I was willing to commit myself to to be successful. And it's that mindset that we talk about and, and setting your, your surroundings, your environment, and setting up for success. Yeah. There's a lot to be said about that. Yeah, that's excellent. And that definitely rang true through our talk today. And we'll definitely have you back here soon because I know there's a whole list of other things that we didn't even get the chance to touch on. So we will get you back. Thank we'll you. We'll do part two. I love it. Talk about your travels. Talk about talk about our love of uh, knowing that you can hunt fish. Yeah, you can hunt fish. Oh, I do want to. I want to do uh, one thing that I was expecting that we get into a little bit more is uh, uh, pop culture. Oh yeah. So I did. I did a little research, <laughs> and I think it's fitting for our conversation. Um, an early '80s movie called Vision Quest. The best movie ever made. Right? So <laughs> I remember watching this way back in the day, and then revisiting. Um, you know, one of our our, our joint friends, I would call him. Um, said we should, you know, you should watch this and, and bring it up. And my only response to him when after I watched it was, it's it's not about everything else, right? It's about what you do with that six minutes. Exactly. And I think it's very fitting to end our conversation with that. It's about what you're willing to do in that six minutes to be successful down the road. If you oh, good. Drop mic drop. <laughs> Vision quest. We love you. All right. Thank All you right. very much. Thanks, I appreciate man. it.